Well, kia ora koutou, everyone, and uh, welcome to The Hoon, a weekly uh, show on the kaka where uh, myself, Bernard Hickey, and Peter Bale um, take a lap around the world of geopolitics and our political economy here in New Zealand. And um, you will perhaps not be surprised to see we have our very special guest, Robert Patman, Professor Robert Patman from Otago University with us uh, again. Uh, we thought this Ukraine thing might die down a little bit, or at least... It's um, done the opposite. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so what we're going to do is bring Professor Patman on at uh, 4.30 uh, and talk about uh, Ukraine and what's happened there and the, the monumental things that have happened there in the last 24 hours and what it means for us. But um, to, to start off, um, Peter, I thought we'd... Uh, Is that all right with you, Robert, if we, if we come back to you? No, that's fine. Brilliant. Yeah. Thank you. Oh, that's great. So um, uh, appreciate that. And um, really great to see so many people on the call again today. I thought, Peter, we could um, start off with a look at what's happening in the world of housing and interest rates. Yeah, they seem to be related, Bernard. And I, am I right? And, and I think I mentioned to you that I talked to a real estate agent this week who rang me about a place that I had been looking at and the price is coming down. And she said that two offers had uh, been withdrawn after the, you know, the people had got initial clearance on them, but they had, um, uh, you know, the bank, the banks had done the, their check on whether they were having uh, avocado on smashed avocado on toast and too many flat whites and had lost it. And the price has come down by about um, 60, $65,000, which is about 5% of the value of the place. So is, yeah, is there, you know, based on that, based on that focus group of one, is there, a, is there a housing slump, Robert? Can we get into a, uh, Bernard, can we get into a, a, a Daily Mail housing slump here? Yeah, no, well, I definitely think your anecdata is about right. Yeah. So, so when you look at uh, what the uh, house price index, as reported by the Real Estate Institute, is saying, over the last two months, uh, prices across New Zealand have fallen about 2.7%. And when you look at what the Reserve Bank said this week, it's now expecting a fall from the peak, which it now uh, sees as mm. of November last year, of 9%. So you're sort of halfway there. So 5%, about halfway between 25 and 9% or so. And um, yes, if you believe what the Reserve Bank is saying, you should hang on and wait <laughs> for the price of, of your property to drop a bit more. Mm. Hmm. Uh, certainly, the triple CFA has had an impact, and we heard this week from Kiwi Bank's CEO Steve Jerkovic, who's saying that yes, that's one of the reasons they've reduced their uh, mortgage approvals, and that it's taken quite a bit longer to get mortgage approvals through. But we know that David Clark, the Communist Minister, is working on some regulatory. Did you call him the Communist Minister there? <laughs> was that was that a mishearing of mine? Yeah, no, no, no. Um, you've got all these protesters around Parliament mm. accusing the government of being either fascists or communists. So yeah, they... or Nazis. Yeah, it's a it's a fantastic melange of um, misguided labels, which we'll get yes, into again on Ukraine in a minute. And in a really um, uh, too close to the bone example of um, words being thrown around that are inappropriate. Um, those words were thrown around in Europe too. We'll get back to that mm. Uh, mm. after four thirty, but. Uh, the Commerce Minister, David Clark, is looking to uh, tweak those regulations to make it easier to get in there for the banks to sign off on those loans. And I still think that, uh, yes, it slowed things down. And yes, there's a few people who've had to 
uh, find the receipts for their smashed avocados to, to show the banker. Mm. Although you do have to wonder um, how good the banks are at mining the data in their own system, because most people now are using their uh, credit cards and debit cards to do all their buying. So the banks should know exactly how much you're spending and exactly where you're spending it. Mm. Spending. Mm. They may not know that you had two smashed avocados or uh, five trim lattes, but they'll know that you Jesus, spend... have you been have you been looking at my bank account? <laughs> more... Yeah. yeah. Um, so they should they should know, but uh, uh, we will, um, I think, see the banks come back into the market. And that's one of the pieces of news we've seen in the last week or so, is that both ANZ and Kiwi Bank have come back into the market to start offering low deposit loans mm -hmm. to first home buyers. Now, they're not back in there in the same heavy way they were at the end of last year, but they're certainly back in there now. ANZ has what they call a... Um, uh, a measure of the disposable income you're supposed to have mm -hmm. if you can handle a 6% mortgage rate. And that's all very topical now because the Reserve Bank this week came out and put up the official cash rate by 0.25%, said that it was this close to putting it up by 50 basis points. I suspect the Omicron surge that we're having right now and the noise. Oh, interesting. Because we we would we were, you know, we were having a little bit of a bet last week about whether it would be 50 or 50 or 25. And I think we we thought it might be 50, didn't we, Bernard? Didn't didn't you well, being the chance the, of 50? The, um, mm. uh, I, I was leading towards 25, but we, mm. we did get 25. But uh, what was interesting was the Reserve Bank was open about telling everyone that they they almost went to, with 50 and they're open to the idea of using it again. Because inflation, you know, is really out there. They're supposed to keep it around about 2%, between 1% and 3% over the longer run. And right now we're looking at inflation headed towards 6%, uh, 7% over the next um, six months or so. Mm -hmm. And you've got inflation expectations really starting to shift off that 2% mark where they've been stuck for a couple of decades. And the Reserve Bank knows it's behind the curve. It really needs to ramp things up to... Get us all back in our box. Our our inflation is not moving box. And oh, uh, so are they asking us to be part of the team of five million on inflation? Team of five million. That's just right. as we're well, just as we're totally nauseated by the team of yeah, four, yeah. five million. Yeah, of, it's it's more like the team of one and a half million who own homes. Uh, that's where most of the lending goes to. These oh, the, days. Is, how many votes does National get? About one and a half million. There's, there's yeah. that. Mm. That's right. Um, there's quite a few median voters mm. now who you need to focus on if you want to win government. And they are the ones who do own homes, and they're quite happy with all of these increasing house prices. They don't like interest rate increases, mm -hmm. although actually when you look at the stats, you can see that they're not very stressed at all. Uh, they're spending, on average, New Zealand homeowners are spending just less than 6% of their disposable income on servicing their mortgage. Yeah, but that's going to be, yeah, I know, but I, that's that there will be people who have a gigantic percentage that is, right? So the, there's going to be some people who will really, you know, particularly yeah, first home buyers and perhaps some people who have overcommitted and bought, bought too many um, jet, ski, jet skis and, um, jet and skis, nice cars yes. during the... Um, Double cab jets and jet skis. Yeah, well, yeah. and, you know, a lot of people will have done equity release, won't they, Bernard, or borrowed against the... Well, um, that's the interesting thing. Over the last 10 years, the Reserve Bank has clamped down on low deposit uh, lending. And remember, we all forget that, you know, one of the things about a 40% rise in house prices in two years is that now there's an awful lot of people with really big equity buffers. Yeah, and also with interest rates, although they've they've gone up, the new fixed mortgage rates are up around about the 4.3 mark, and they're up from about 2.3, 2.5 uh, in the middle of last year. 
we're only now getting interest rates back up to where they were in 2019. So mm-hmm. it's up a bit, but it's still not really, really tough for a lot of people. And it's amazing got- how we it's amazing how quickly we forget it though, doesn't it? I mean, I, I was thinking the other day about when I first bought a house in the UK a while ago, it was 17%, I think was the interest rate that I paid at that time, which was around the time of the Norman Lamont, Lamont ERM, Britain falling out of the ERM, interest rates went to um, spectacularly high levels in the in 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 the uh, intraday, and that was the time when George Soros, you know, made a billion billion pounds out of um, betting against the pound. You know, fourteen percent seems like an absolutely astronomical amount of interest to be paying now. Um, but I was also thinking, Bert, when you're talking about how the banks are coping and we're all intelligent, the two thousand eight great uh, global financial crisis, the GFC. You know, is the la- I'm just thinking about as we as we lead towards poor old Robert sitting there, um, thinking about this. You know, we're gonna there's going to be some eco- real life economic shocks coming that may be quite alarming for equities markets, for interest rates, and for inflation. The real yeah. world is coming knocking on our door. Yeah, I mean, we're in a period of extreme volatility, and um, it is possible. You know, if inflation does get out of control, that the Reserve Bank has to put it back to somewhere where it was even a, a decade or two decades ago, um, the last time that we saw real stress for a lot of people who were borrowing to buy houses Mm. was back in 2000, 2007, 2008, when interest rates were 10%. And at that time, on average, New Zealanders were spending 14% of their disposable income on servicing a mortgage. So um, we're actually less than half of that right now. So we have to go up an awful lot to really cause pain for that. But I think we need to, there must be, that would be very interesting for, for the Bernard Hickey Corporation or the, the Kaka Corporation uh, with, a, with a K for both K and, and Kaka and Corporation, which I can barely say, to look at who is stretched and who is not. You know, where the, because I just, you know, I, I think those averages of it being 6% is a really nice idea. But if, you know, there's 300,000 new house owners who are at a, much more substantial rate and very sensitive to uh, interest rate rises, then you've got a, you've got a political problem. Yeah. Um, when you actually do look at those numbers, which break down who have gotten in in the last six months, 12 months or so, who might be the most stressed, those people, remember the banks, whenever they give you a loan these days, they always check to see that you can handle a 6 or 7% mm. mortgage rate before they tick the box. Even though you're only paying a mortgage last year of 2.3%. Mm. So what it means is that even if interest rates do go up to 6%, which is what um, some are suggesting if the Reserve Bank follows its own forecasts, then those borrowers are actually still in really good shape. And remember, a lot of those people who are borrowing at the stressed margins, so young couples, I suppose, professional couples who've maybe got a um, you know 20% deposit and they've borrowed a million dollars or something crazy, uh, they are actually also seeing their incomes uh, rise quite substantially because they're the ones who are getting the big in- income increases. So their um, household income is rising 18% per year. And uh, uh, I actually don't think that there is enormous amounts of stress there, even with rising interest rates. Is, yes, you're you're sounding people. a bit too optimistic here, Bernard. You're, I suppose, oh, yeah. I'm supposed to be the optimistic one and you're the gloomy one, aren't you? Or isn't it? I can't remember yeah, I, now. I, I can't remember which, which role play we're doing. 
<laughs> I'm the good cop today. Mm. Uh, so um, there is a bit of, um, I, I think it's worth calling bullshit a bit on um, the people who worry that somehow New Zealand's households are so indebted that they're about to fall over with just a little nudge that the house of cards just needs mm. a breath of wind and it's going to fall down. I don't think that's the case at all. And we all forget that uh, interest rates are so, so much lower than they were even a couple of mm. years ago. Mm. And also that there's just so much equity now, um, $2.4 trillion of household wealth that New well, Zealand has. I think someone, has. someone there's, there's two excellent lines here. Brett Tamahori said a very nice thing on our chat just now, saying that if you're not part of the economy, you're somewhere on a, sorry, if you don't own assets, you're not part of the economy. You're just somewhere on a range from fuel for the economy to debris from the economy, <laughs> which is almost as good as the line about New Zealand being a, a housing market with an economy attached, which... I believe somebody on this podcast might have come up with. Exactly. Brett, that is absolutely fantastic. And if, I hope you don't mind if I... No, no, I've, I've, I've warned him we're going to steal it mercilessly. <laughs> Trademark. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're, we're sponsored by Brett Tamahori and some gin this week. Ah, gin. Yeah, no, unfortunately, you know, no, I'm, in, I'm in the bowels of Parliament again. And of course, it has to be alcohol-free. Oh, really? Um, all the alcohol has been consumed in the grounds around Parliament at the moment. I, oh, is Bellamy started de delivering, delivering booze to the protesters now? That would be it's, just a yeah. That no, would be a new a new venture by Mallard. Well, one of one of the really interesting quirks, just going off topic a bit, about the protests is that off topic. It's right us, that would never happen. No, right in between the backbenches uh, pub and Parliament is where all the protests are. Mm. Now, initially, we all thought the backbenches would close down, and it was a sad story of a. Uh, a pub owner who was um, well, he seems to be uh, the prime. He seems to be the prime go-between between everybody, wasn't he? The one who brought them over to see David Seymour. Exactly. Yeah. So he's been he's been open, making food, selling beer for the, mm. for the whole time, uh, supporting the protests. So he's had supporting he's or, one... or just supporting or just fueling them. Is he actually a supporter? Uh, yeah, no. Um, um, uh, he has been um, very supportive of the people in and around there, and. Uh, I suspect he's the one hotelier in the whole of Wellington who's actually made a profit in the last mm. two or three weeks. Mm. Even so, if he's got uh, rather smelly, rather smelly customers with unpleasant yeah, things on their on their it's shoes. Big piles of rubbish outside the front. Yeah. yeah, rubbish is not the word I'm thinking of. But Bernard, are we going off housing and then onto onto the protesters before we get to Robert? What do, what, what do you want to yeah, do? Yeah, I think we've done a really really clever segue from yeah. from the housing market into the protesters mm. uh, who are now starting to dribble away so over the last almost literally days, since most of them have got long covid by the hope well, that, sounds of it. yeah that is, yeah I'm, I'm let's hope they're not watching it otherwise mm. there's, mm. there's going to be a storming of parliament to, into the studio yeah <laughs> to, to to try and grab this peter bale character through mm. the through mm. the line mm. excellent i'm not going anywhere uh, near wellington yeah that is a, a sad fact actually that um covid is now rife in the protest camp right outside parliament we've had at least two people who've tested positive and we know from uh from what we're seeing there are people you know who are sick who are yeah. there in denial who are blaming um radar guns from the oh yes i saw that we i saw the, that they've the, yeah, there's, a, there's a little there's a cell phone tower which is being described as a um as 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 some sort of uh, land weapon or some other thing and i but i was most amused to hear one of the one of the excellent and long suffering epidemiologists on the wireless this week saying that winston peters had been most unwise for a man of his age to go walking through the crowd crowd without a mask it's extraordinary mm. i mean this is the former deputy prime minister foreign minister 
rocking up to these guys without a mask. I'm sure he's vaccinated, but he's uh, he's you know trying. Yeah, but he's to... he's not vaccinated against his own ego. He'll go and he uh, he'd go to the opening of an envelope, wouldn't he? No, and he did the unfortunate thing of holding up the blank piece of paper in front of the cameras again mm, mm. of a of a young girl who said that she was happy to see Mr. Peters, mm. but. Um, uh, that was one of the weird events of this week, and uh, he he has um, come back onto the stage in, in probably not a way that I think has endeared himself to large swathes of the population. And uh, interestingly, he, he would be one of the few um, people who were very keen on improving relations with Russia before um, the events of the last week, and mm. um, and he's been one of those people. Uh, quite uh, quiet in his uh, condemnation of what's happened in Russia that I've seen. You have know. you noticed, Bernard, whether this is turning into an excellent segue towards Robert as well, but have you noticed whether any of the protesters have um, have started either flying Ukrainian flags or I think more likely suggesting that um, Putin has been been wronged and that and that the usual suspects in the United States and the evil capitalists have um, pushed us down this situation? Is that right? Has, well, has, has, have you seen any evidence of this? Yeah, well, this is one of the extraordinary things about this protest. Right from the start, there were Trump flags, American mm. flags, and of course, in the last couple of weeks, Canadian flags uh, and Russian flags. I've seen Russian flags mm. in the protest, mm. which when I saw them, I, I did a double take and I thought, is that a Russian flag? And I, you know, I did the thing, you go on Google just to make sure you know what the latest yeah. flag is. Well, it also could, it could be flying upside down, you know, based on based well, on their rationale to that. That's right. I mean, it is amazing. We an essentially completely foreign off the off the reservation ideas mm. have come into, I wouldn't call it a mainstream, but they're certainly in the news feeds of four million people on Facebook mm. in New Zealand. And a, you know, a significant chunk, at least a couple of thousand people who were there at the protest, and according to a poll this week, 23% of New Zealanders support what was going on at the protest, mm. at least the parts around the anti-mandate. So it is absolutely extraordinary when you, when you um, hear people um, in front of television cameras, in front of the parliament, blame... Um, radio guns and 5G towers for, for the fact that they've got a really bad headache and uh, yeah. chest cough. It's just let alone, let alone the alleged nurse who was talking about the, the two Maori girls who were, I think she said, leaking black blood like urine, which, yeah, sounded, I mean, you know, I mean, it if, didn't sound very pleasant, but I also thought it sounded utterly made up. Yeah, I mean, you've got to laugh, I suppose. It's just so bizarre. Well, I'm but, not sure you do have to laugh because I am, I mean, you know, as you say, 23, supposedly 23% of people have, have sympathy for them. I have sympathy for the for the idea of not having mandates. I noticed today there's been a court judgment about the mandates against the police or in the police force and the armed forces being against the uh, Bill of Rights legislation. So I think that particular house is crumbling anyway, but they're not certainly not going to crumble in response to those, pro those protesters. That's right. Um, interestingly, uh, this week from the government, uh, the, the um, reminder that, yes, the, the mandates will end, and increasingly the government is flexing towards opening the borders earlier and having shorter self-isolation mm. periods. Chris Ipkins said that in the next month they would look to reduce those self-isolation periods for New Zealanders returning from Australia because they arrive on Monday, they start from Monday, mm. and um, the government without wanting to you know give in to the to the protesters are uh, very much you know getting ready to 
start to dial things back. Assuming, of course, that the hospital system can cope with the big numbers of extra uh, hospital cases, it seems the ICUs are no longer the, the main uh, point of uh, uh, pain where, is, where, the, where the hospital system is under real pressure. It's actually just the, the broad wards of, mm -hmm. of whether we've got enough beds in hospitals and, and nurses to handle the numbers going through. And of course, um, sadly, five deaths today. So uh, that will be interesting to see how the government handles um, that gently backing away from the mandates, obviously, um, too, as well. Once we get to the fourth and the fifth booster shots, um, there'll be a real desire to get away from mandates then because, um, you know, it becomes a problem. And as you say, with it, there's a bunch of court, court cases going through, both mm. mandates and also MIQ. As they should, of course. You know. Yeah, and, and the government, I think, may find itself able to say, well, you know, the court said this and... The, med the, the medical need has changed and um, our hospital system has coped, so we don't need this anymore. And I suspect we're a few weeks away from, from that on some of the mandates, not the most essential ones, the ones around the hospitals and the prisons and um, perhaps the schools, but some of the more, you know, some of the, some of the more fringe areas around the essential services could see yeah. those mandates go. And Bernard, what about that situation yesterday? I think it was in Christchurch with um, Jacinda Ardern being pretty, I mean, it was way beyond heckling. It was pretty nasty stuff. Yeah, this has been one of the themes of the last um, three or four months that a lot of these, these protests have gone straight for the jugular, so to speak. You know, when, when we have protests in New Zealand, um, uh, when they get heated, they start to get personal. And, you know, we're the three of us in this uh, Zoom call are old enough to remember the um, uh, the really heated and angry protests around the Springbok tour and some of the anti-nuclear protests where people focus their anger on Robert Muldoon or they focus their anger uh, on... Um, on the Red Brigade and the Blue Brigade and so on. That's yeah. right. Um, mm. But we've gone straight to, you know, the people who are protesters, not only saying they think that um, the Prime Minister should resign, but literally, you know, holding up signs saying they 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 want her executed. Yeah, and also this that there is awful. already a trial underway, that there's that yeah. she's already wearing a it was very amusing in the story about we've had some excellent pictures of it, of quite quite a number of people at the um protests having the um home home detention um bands on their on their on their um, ankles you know the idea oh, sure. that, that 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 Jacinda was allegedly fitted for one you know, in oh, no. the, on, on a visit to the White House I it mean is, it is it just is absolutely bonkers, bonkers. Mm. it's just completely bonkers the stuff that's coming out and this is why I have to push back at a bunch of people who say that you know journalists need to uh, you know ask questions and start to understand the people in the protest um, I've actually walked through two or three times um, with a mask on and with my um, press gallery uh, card and, you know, obviously identified mm -hmm. who I am when I start to ask people questions. And uh, the level of vitriol and hatred and, you know, anger that you get as a purely as a journalist. Toward, towards you? Yeah. How tall are you, Bernard? Yeah, no, I'm I'm a big ugly bugger. I, I wouldn't mess with you. You know, I've seen little Henry Cook being, you know, roundly abused. I'm a big you know, softy. Though. I don't, don't call him little Henry. Said I say I called him little Henry Cook because he's done some terrific work this week on oh, showing yeah. what a bunch of nutters they are. Yeah, no, and it's... I say I say that trying to be reasonable. I mean, I, I I do have some sympathy for the mandate thing, but I have seen some absolutely bonkers 
behavior there um, from Henry and others. I don't I don't want to dismiss everybody there, but oh my God, there's some nutters there. Yeah. And well, I am deeply concerned. Serious... I'm concerned about the proliferation of nutters, really. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, there is a serious issue here beyond that, I think, which is the uh, proliferation of misinformation, disinformation, mm. which is flooded into the news feeds of people on yep. Facebook, but also in YouTube. Now, I wrote a piece a couple of weeks ago saying that this sort of misinformation should be treated more as a national security threat and that we should look to start regulating the algorithms of the um, social media platforms, which... There are activists in the United States and mm. Europe and the UK who are looking actively looking at this. It's really hard, though. Of course, the Chinese have have and the Russians have uh, have done their own. Yeah, how's that? How's that gone for them? Yeah, yeah. Well, so so let's segue. Shall we segue effortlessly oh, on that, well on that call to to lovely Robert then? Because um, one of the things that's happened, of course, today, Robert, and I don't know whether you've picked up on this, but let's let's try and stick with this um, segue a little bit without driving over the cliff, as the man who used to own the segue business did. Um, the misinformation, the, uh, there's an awful lot of video misinformation and so on mm. being distributed around um, around the whole uh, Ukraine dis- Ukraine invasion. There's old Russian army footage. There's footage from Libya. There's all sorts of madness there. But of course, there's also terrific and extraordinary firsthand footage from the likes of Odessa, uh, Mariupol mm. and, and Kiev. Yeah, well, I mean, one of the problems about misinformation in the context of Russia is the, the, he, the leader does lead from the front. And um, he's made some extraordinary statements about uh, how genocide was being practiced in the Ukraine and Nazi regime, which was interesting, actually, because Mr. Putin knows all about backing Nazis. He's been backing um, um, Alternative für Deutschland, AFD, Mm. which are neo-Nazis, you know. And and of course, there's there's something slightly, I mean, you know, we have to admit that there are extreme right wing um, Ukrainians who are generally in that in that kind of far right, far, far eastern Donbass area, but you've yeah. also got the the president of um, Ukraine happens to be Jewish. Yeah, you know, which um, uh, I saw a clip with uh, President Zelensky, and he was he did look genuinely hurt by mm. yeah, and, and uh, recounted how his family had suffered terribly uh, during the Nazi period when during the Second World War, but um, yeah. It, the misinformation that one of the things I'm finding interesting is that there does seem to be an indication. Um, this is just impressionistic, but listening to some very good journalists who are covering both the story from Moscow and also from Kiev, mm. that many Russians have been completely uh, stunned by what's happened mm. and shocked. Um, and it was that interesting to see some, some of these some of these protest um, yeah, uh, gatherings. And I think, and I think that, Western that, diplomacy hasn't really caught up with this yet. For example, many Western countries have reacted to the invasion uh, by talking to, about technical things, which are good, mm, like sanctions mm. and all the rest of it. But I think uh, you know they should seriously think about some sort of, and it sounds quite banal, but I think it could actually be quite potent, which is a joint statement produced by many countries. Perhaps New Zealand could play a role. To the, to the Russian people. To the Russian people. Just what a very good idea. Putin. What an excellent idea. And I suspect you're right that that is coming. Something like that is coming because well, New Zealand, as hard as... I, it, yeah. yeah. Sorry, I was carry just on. thinking about the Christchurch court initiative mm, between a mm. small state and a middle power like France, between New Zealand and France. 
And I think New Zealand should go, we've got a lot of, we've got quite a lot of international political capital. And I think it's something that we could not necessarily lead on, but we could play a very supportive. What a great idea. I'm just, going to, tweet that. I'm just going to tweet that to the prime minister now. And, um, and we'll see if she picks it. Picks. I think it's an excellent idea. I mean, yeah, I think well, going, I, I, going over the head of Putin as difficult yeah, as Yeah, I mean, is. we're not, you know, we've been trying to deal with Putin for a long time. And we are in a, you know, one of the things is that's, I think sometimes we, although we deal with, you know, the information revolution on a daily basis, and we all take it for granted, sometimes mm -hmm. we underestimate its potential for reaching out into authoritarian societies. I, I, you probably saw I did a piece in newsroom today where I said I felt that Putin was acting out of weakness, not strength. Mm -hmm. And I argued that, yes, he does see threat. He does see it. He, ha he does have a sense of threat. But it's not on the grounds that he's officially saying, which is a national security threat. It's a political threat. Mm -hmm. He was really rattled by the protests in Kazakhstan and um, Belarus. And yeah. the last thing he wants is a, a vibrant democracy on his doorstep from a quite a big country like the Ukraine, mm. which is increasingly linked to the West. So viewed from Mr. Putin's eyes, he needs to extinguish that threat as soon as possible because it's a big threat to his actual regime. There's lots of people very unhappy in Russia about his mm. leadership. Mm. So I do think a statement that was pitched at the Russian people, because he's lied to them massively. Um, and that, you know, there's been a number of stories by good Western journalists who've said that when they put it to Russians, what do they feel about their country invading Ukraine? Well, first of all, they were just incredulous. Mm. Um, and secondly, uh, they were quite angry about it because they said, well, what, we understood that, you know, this was a, a Nazi regime threatening our country, et cetera, et cetera. So I do think it's an idea worth exploring. And it, I think we should put a bit of pressure on Putin. Mm. You know, he's rattling everybody around. Uh, let's let's put a bit of informational pressure on him. I mean, we've got the technical capability. Uh, a lot of young Russians are relying on their news from the internet, which is mm. why they figured so prominently amongst the protests against the war, by the way, because they've got, uh, I think, much greater international links with their counterparts elsewhere and getting their news um, not just from state media. Yeah, it's but, interesting know, it's to see several, think about. several thousand people uh, protesting in St. Petersburg, but every time more than three or four people gather in Moscow, they appear to be shut down immediately and arrested. Yes, well, that you know, that's the other thing is that since 2012, uh, Putin has sort of rebranded himself as one of the leaders of the international conservative movement. This mm. is why he's been hanging out with the likes of Nigel Farage and Aaron Banks, and dare I say it, um, one or two people have been connected to Mr. Peters. Yes. Um, you know, uh, I was, you know, in the last election, it was quite interesting to see some of the Brexit people being linked with mm. Mr. Peters. Um, unfortunately, they weren't able to deliver for him. They, I think some of them were bragging that they were going to get him over the 5% threshold, but it didn't happen. Um, but putting that to one side, uh, Putin has rebranded himself not just in the international stage, because he's facing, from his point of view, an increasingly perilous domestic situation. He was very upset also about the Arab Spring. Mm. This bottom-up protest really rattles authoritarian leaders who see being in political power a lifetime job. And um, 
of course, Mr. Putin's got nowhere to go as he lose power. No, it's very well, interesting. I think, but um, uh, Robert, the uh, I, I spent quite a bit of time in Cambodia a couple of years ago, and they uh, Hun Sen, the dictator there, uh, is very close to Putin, or they're, they've become increasingly close to Moscow, and they both refer to this concept of the color revolution, which you know sprang yeah. from the. Uh, original orange revolution in um, in Ukraine, which was you know which was a response to the to the rejection of the attempt to go to go towards Europe. I mean, it's, the, the the level of interference that's happened in uh, Ukraine from Moscow in the last fourteen or fifteen years is quite oh. extraordinary. You know, this is this is the latest in a and yeah, worse, but of I, course. I do think the the rest of the world has to actually put a bit of heat on Mr. Putin domestically and go over his head. Mm. Um, because he's he hasn't hesitated to interfere. Well, he, let's be quite clear. Um, he he, we can't definitively prove it yet, but the, you, there's a fair amount of circumstantial evidence that he played a role in the Brexit referendum in the UK in 2016, and also in the presidential election four months later. Mm, um, definitely. I mean that one, so, that one. The 2016, I think, is is generally accepted and proven. It's just a question of the the yeah. motivation. But what what do you? There's been some very interesting. You know, we talked about this. I think maybe two weeks ago now, which was the use of the the way the Americans were opening intelligence very 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 quickly. Now, yeah. That suggested to me that they have the capacity to listen and spy on um, uh, Russian military communications and political communications extremely effectively. But you recall, I think it was in 2017, they lost or appeared to have lost most of their human intelligence yeah. capacity inside the Kremlin. Do you get the sense that they, in fact, have um, now have some human intelligence inside the Kremlin that's that's uh, giving them information? Or do you think it's all eavesdropping? And, and uh, I just don't signals? know, uh, Peter, actually, to be quite frank. Well, I mean, excuse it, me, it, you're sitting in Dalian, you're supposed to know everything. Oh, <laughs> no, but I mean, we might pretend we know everything, but... <laughs> It's a pretense that doesn't really convince, so it's not worth pursuing too much. Hmm. But um, I, I think in the shadowy world of intelligence, it's always things are never quite as they seem. Uh, I do think, going back to the, what we discussed before about, you know, over laboring the point, I think that was a smart decision by both the hmm. US, the Europeans and the UK to declassify their intelligence as quickly as possible, because it definitely seems to have sown the seeds of a debate. Uh, in certain circles in in Russia. Uh, and I think um, it's early days yet. There's a lot of very pessimistic coverage at the moment, understandably so. It's, a, mm. it's, it's, it's really appalling what Mr. Putin's done. Um, and, you know, you, you, your sort of heart goes out to the Ukrainians who feel isolated. Um, but I, I do think this could yet backfire on Mr. Putin. Absolutely. Do, do you think do you think there is enough of a, a, a an upwelling of opposition to the war within Russia that could create some sort of new color revolution, or is he, or has Putin got such a strong grip through the security forces on these sorts of protests that it could never really turn into some sort of you know outpouring? No, I at the moment I think Mr. Putin's pretty secure. He's quite. I mean, the, one of the things that I think people in um, the democratic world or the democratic countries have problems with is getting their head around just how ruthless he is. Hmm. I mean, I mean, this is the I'm not who, saying he's who, personally who, who, killed who, who, a lot of people, but a lot of people have died ensuring his political success. Put it that way. 
Yes, including and, the apartment bombings before the Chechen uh, well, Second Chechen War. You know, it's it's always difficult to point the finger, mm-hmm. but he's not going to have a comfortable retirement, as one specialist on Russia told me, because there'll be <laughs> too many people looking for him. But the, the, so he's got to stay in power anyway. Mm-hmm. That's his game plan. But the 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 point I was thinking about coming back to Bernard's point is. I think he, he he snuffs out any protest early, but what could get interesting um, is that if Russia gets ensnared, I think Russia will overrun Ukraine rapidly in mm. military terms. That, but that's not really a big deal. We expect that. I mean, Russia has a massive military edge over the Ukraine, and even if Russia technically took over the country. As we've seen elsewhere, when superpowers have deposed a government and tried to take control, that doesn't prevent often very damaging insurgencies Absolutely. developing. I wonder also, Robert, whether the whether the resistance such as it is or the threat to Putin may actually come from the military. Um, there's 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 been some stuff going around today about some units of of the um russian military balking at the idea of killing killing fellow ukrainians or killing you know fellow slavs um yeah I, you know i just wonder whether whether the military is the one is the one is the organization that may balk at this and um you know it's difficult because of course it's all hand-picked you know maybe he's done a stalin oh, yeah. and gotten rid of quite a few people oh yeah and he would you know, he, he would dispose of anyone if he got a. I think if he got an inkling, mm. they were onto him or trying to unseat him. Uh, he also faces a threat, of course, from people who may be within his entourage who think they can do a better job of being Putin than Putin. So yeah. uh, that's that's another possibility. But the point I was going to make, if we just for a moment sketched a scenario where Russia found itself ensnared in what became a bloody conflict, mm. and you know. There's nothing to stop, by the way, Eastern European countries, although members of NATO, to help um, to help Ukraine on a bilateral basis. Yeah, um, that that could make it. It would increase the costs of Russian involvement. And the other thing is, I can't at the moment see. And this is one of the criticisms that was aired by two of the military critics of Putin within Russia that there's going to be much pro-Russian sentiment in Ukraine after this no. last few days, apart from, of course, the people they created in in Donetsk and yeah. Luhansk. Um, I think it's going to be an uphill struggle to establish a pro-Russian regime in the Ukraine that has cre- that commands... In these the circumstances, support. absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And, but I think the two, coming back to the point that was raised by Bernard, I think we could get a convergence... If Russia gets bogged down and more and more Russians get killed, some of those protests get made in Russia really get big to the point where they're not easily picked off. At the moment, they seem to be just picking them off. Mm. So we just have, to, you know, it's it's very difficult to predict. Yeah. And so um, just, just, just so, thinking so, about how then. how NATO um, and the the West reacts here, because you know they have to be careful not to you know get. Uh, ensnared in this whole thing or for it to spill over beyond the Ukraine borders, what what can they do physically to try to limit the damage, maybe help the Ukrainians, but uh, with with the resources they've got? What I'm trying to work out is what is NATO, and apart from the financial sanctions, what can they actually do militarily? Well, it's interesting you mentioned this point because I understand the president of Latvia 
has asked for a meeting of uh, a consultation meeting because I think quite a few of the Eastern European NATO states uh, are anticipating that if Mr. Putin carries out a successful blitzkrieg in the Ukraine, he may not want to stop there. Mm. Please notice that his demands were not confined to the Ukraine. His original two demands were yep. that Ukraine shouldn't be a member of NATO, but he also insisted that basically NATO should um, disestablish itself in Eastern Ooh, Europe and yeah. go back to the 97 arrangement with removing all the protection of those 14 states. Now, those 14 states are very aware for historical reasons about Russian ambitions in Eastern Europe. So uh, I think, um, yeah. And, and the other thing is, you know, even if NATO is really disciplined, I'm sure it is disciplined, it seems to me a well-run um, and, and very consultative organisation. It's a multilateral military organisation. These wars can spill over. Mm. And, you know, I think we've all been around long enough to know the one thing that's predictable about wars is that they never go according to plan. And yeah, isn't I, it? But yeah, a little bit, there's an interesting NATO could get inadvertently sucked in. Well, there's an interesting one of the sort of as of course we've been we've all been epidemiologists over the last two years. We were economists before that, and now we're all um, strategic consultants. Although you're you're a proper one, there is a right. there is a discussion about uh, I mean, knowing that Putin's main objective is chaos for other people and instability and putting himself at the centre of things and making him un himself unignorable. Is it likely that what he wants to do in Ukraine or will settle for in Ukraine is instability in the same way as he did that with Georgia and with Moldova, with the trans the bizarre Transdenestra Republic, which is I've been to and a friend of mine describes as the Jurassic Park of communism, which sits right on the edge of um, of, of Moldova, making it almost impossible for Moldova, the poorest country in, in Europe, mm. to get off its knees. Well, Mr. P Putin's quite creative, isn't he, in creating problems for others? So we, I don't think we can rule it out. Um, but um, I think he may have bitten off more than he can chew with this particular mm. venture, because I think um, we're not the only ones discussing ideas of how Mr. Putin's life can become more difficult. Mm. I think what he's done has just gone beyond the pale for many people and just, I think he's crossed a line. Another idea that I heard, I, I was, it just went across my mind the other day, is whether countries should collectively not only think about statements directed at uh, the Russian people, but whether they should actually collectively sever relations mm. with Russia en masse. Mm. I mean, that would also register because it, it probably is probably just you know, an academic talking out of his rear end here, because it's probably that would, not practical. That would never happen, Robert. No, no it no. would never happen. That's and, our job. Uh, it, 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 it might have about a five-minute impact, but it's probably not practical. No, I meant an academic well, talking out of his bottom. That would never happen. Well, <laughs> but but I, I'm interested in this idea of you know trying to shut off Russia, and that's obviously what um, the initial sanctions have talked about, particularly in financial terms, stopping uh, banks from trading Russian bonds, but they haven't really taken the, you know, the ultimate uh, step, which is to cut Russia off from the international financial system through cutting them off from the SWIFT. Yeah, the SWIFT. Yeah. And, and also, you know, Russia uh, is a huge oil and gas exporter. And uh, even during the Cold War, there, were, there was trade going on between Russia and the rest of the world, wheat exports, imports, all sorts of mm. things. 
I mean, how exposed is Russia if, you know, people do get together and I say, mean, right, if, I, if only it was the... If buy only, anything or sell anything to you. Well, if only it was the days, Bernard, when we did uh, butter for larder deals with, yes. um, with 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 the Soviet Union. I mean, we'd all be driving around in Zetor tractors and uh, and larders, as we were. Yeah, well, uh, the Skodas very uh, now are quite good. The yeah, oh, yeah, but, yeah excuse me, but the, well, I think we all know what happened with the Skodas. But, you know, this is it's built such still around that we could get him to do some negotiations oh, with the Russians. Well, that's no, a little tasteful, possibly. You're going back there. But I'm actually curious, um, Robert, can, can Russia, you know, survive? How much of a disruption would it be if we were to take the ultimate step of saying, right, we're not going to buy any stuff off you and um, we're not going to sell anything to you? How, how, how long or how much disruption does that cause? Well, I think Mr. Putin has anticipated this and he probably has some sort of informal understanding with China. Apparently, China released an extraordinary statement, which I haven't personally seen, but a reliable colleague of mine said that um, China released a statement today saying that Russia was a, a sovereign country and it was free to do what it liked. Well, it so, also it also the, the foreign office, the foreign affairs spokesman in China in a, in a live press conference uh, attacked one of the reporters uh, for using the obvious Western slur to describe this as an invasion. <laughs> and, I, and I think, you know, like pornography, an invasion is, you know, you know, an invasion when you when you see one. One thing on this, Bernard and, and Robert, about New Zealand, I happened to take a look at some some older material today about a chap called um, Alexander Abramov who has a $50 million lodge in Northland at Helena Bay uh, and is a former right-hand man of, of Putin's, has made, he used to be one of the richest men in, or is one of the richest men in Russia, um, controls one of the biggest steel companies there. What are we doing about that? I mean, he is absolutely saturated in the Panama Papers, as was New Zealand, I happen mm -hmm. to recall. Uh, you might remember, Bernard, I had something to do with that. And mm. this guy, uh, Abramov, is also part of what's called the, um, the Troika Laundromat, which is, uh, you know, funneling, funneling dirty money through Cyprus, um, uh, Latvia, and onto and onto Denmark. I think it was in the case of the Troika. Um, I think we need to um, hop in our cars, drive up to Northland, and knock on the door and find out where he is, and and conceivably uh, make a citizen's arrest of the place, take over the place, perhaps well, actually send the Wellington protesters up there. I, <laughs> well, as I as I suspect, isn't he the guy with the really amazing? Um, uh, luxury yacht that looks. I like think you. I think you're thinking of Abramovich, who owns Chelsea. This is this is another. Well, this is Abramov, mm -hmm. not not. Uh, and of course, there's all sorts of things that come with the name Abramov or Abramovich that we won't get into. But these, you know, the, the, uh, you know, we've got oligarchs, or at least this one, mm -hmm. who has property, has connections to New Zealand. I, I still think that New Zealand has not done enough to clean itself up from the days of the Panama Papers. And and John Key, if you recall. Uh, has 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 some responsibilities for this. I mean, let's get him on next week for a chat about this. Y yes. Why not? Yes. yes. I mean, the man himself. So yeah. the, that would be yeah. good. I'm sure yeah. the I'm sure the Chow family that he's now gone into business with are absolutely clean as a whistle. Yeah. Um, I, I'm I'm uh, I'm interested now. What what happens now? So um, Robert, uh, the invasion's going on. Everyone seems to accept that uh, their military can do the conventional um, sweep through thing. But as I understand it, there's now a significant risk of an extended ex insurgency. Every Ukrainian seems to be grabbing a, an AK-47 mm. and heading for the hills. Um, what's, what's the prospect there for Russia to be 
bogged down. Um, I happened to look at the, some of the coverage of the Chechen um, conflict and just the extraordinary destruction and intensity of the, um, mm. the battles that went on for years. Could, could Russia really get bogged down here? I think it's a possibility. Um, and it may happen after a period of relative success for Russia and Ukraine. Um, it may happen after two or three or maybe five months. I think that's a possibility. Um, I don't think the Ukrainians, it's very difficult to judge from this distance, but from what I've read and to uh, and listening carefully to the people in the country and also um, diplomats, I, I think it. I, I think there's a real determination amongst many Ukrainians. Uh, they've had a pretty torrid history. And I think they're really been incensed by Putin's interpretation of history. Mm, mm. And I, I think, you know, um, as we've seen in Vietnam and Afghanistan, great powers can go into countries, but ultimately they can be exhausted by tenacious opposition, which may be outgunned in terms of material capabilities, but has, you know, no, low, knows the local environment and just won't give up. So, I mean, I don't know, but I, I think there's a real prospect that Putin may have. And this was the criticism made by these military critics in Russia. Mm. They, 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 you know, the constant message was that this is actually a politically motivated invasion or assault because invasion wasn't on the cards at that stage. And that they saw that Putin wanted to protect his regime. Um, and there was some very hard hitting criticisms of how corrupt it is. Uh, it was it was almost of these military people were quite sympathetic to Alexei Navalny, by the way. But what, what really struck me was that their criticism was that, that this was a, a bit of a na nationalist diversion. This was a regime that was gradually over time under Putin losing its its appeal. Yeah, and, and certainly not certainly not doing anything for the average Russian or the or the younger right, intelligent yeah. the Russian intelligence. But looking after his people, I think Mr. Putin didn't he have mm. a briefing this morning with thirty oligarchs to reassure mm. them that their money was safe with him, wasn't it? Something mm. like from that? a distance, it's always uh, from a distance. As long as they as long as they stay out of politics. If we remember the fantastic meeting where he, where he told Mikhail Khodorkovsky that uh, that's right, he would, do yeah. the, he would do the politics and let let Mikhail Khodorkovsky do the do the money, and we all know how that went. Now, what, one thing I wanted to sort of ask you, really. Or put on out there is I think that there are a lot of very glib descriptions of this as the worst thing that's happened since the, since the Second World War and so on. And this is a very, very different form of warfare from anything that was in the Second, Second World War because of the stand, the ability to do massive scale standoff warfare. The cruise missiles, I mean, there's talk of ballistic missiles already being used against Kiev today. I, I would be surprised about that, but uh, I, I can certainly imagine cruise missiles. You know, this is this is real sort of standoff stuff, destroying the uh, air capacity of um, defensive air capacity of Ukraine on the ground and mm. doing so from a long distance away. It isn't. I mean, it, it, it you know, in as, in as much as we think of Stukas and so on leading blitzkriegs, it is yeah. fast and highly mobile, but it isn't really that like, this, you know, we need to think of a different kind of warfare, don't we? We do. And I agree with all what you said, Peter, and also in addition, the electronic war warfare that the Russians have inflicted on the Ukraine. Uh, mm. Cyber interference uh, apparently has been extensive. People can't, in some places of Ukraine, have been unable to even use, uh, you know, uh, money, uh, money machines and things mm. like that. Mm. So um, 
it must be awful to be caught in this situation. But um, I do take some solace from the fact that it is a different era from the one you described before. And also that there is the world's interconnected. I think it is people, it's possible with the technology now available to us to, to act in a, a, a fashion that I think Putin's use of raw military power, it's impressive at one level, um, but it's also, it's not invulnerable. It can't win hearts and minds. You can't pulverize people into mm. just, you know, keeling over and saying, oh yes, Mr. Putin, we want your protection. We want to be neutral. We want to do everything you want. You know, it's not going to happen. Mm. And I'm a bit shocked that Putin seems to assume it will. Now, just on the risk of, um, you know, accidental uh, spreading of this conflict, I noticed that the um, uh, the Baltic republics are actual members of NATO. And my understanding is that NATO is a, you know, um, common defence alliance. So if one of them is attacked, everyone mm -hmm. has to come That's to right. their defence. Article 5. So um, is there a risk here that, you know, uh, this spills over into one of these um, NATO republics? And, of course, Poland and uh, Romania, Romania, Czech Republic, are, are in uh, NATO as well. So, so is Hungary. Yeah. So, yep. so, it's, uh, so you're at the point where Russia is actually... Um, taking over Ukraine and it is now face to face with some very nervous NATO members where accidents can happen. Very true. And interestingly, if Mr. Putin achieves his goal of taking over NATO, that appears to be his goal, um, he's going to uh, absorb the country, which brings him directly up against Ooh. NATO. And yes. yet he's always argued that he wanted to have distance between yeah, um, you know the Russian sphere of influence and NATO. Um, I, yeah. I think he's just acted as a recruiting sergeant for NATO in Eastern Europe. I, I think, if anything, he's a his behaviour in the last seventy two hours has made everyone in Eastern Europe say, "Thank God we've got NATO." Yeah, which is exactly him. what the momentum was after the after the collapse of the Soviet Union. It wasn't just the Americans, mm. you know, pull, pulling pulling up to the bumper, as it were. Although I, I would argue that the, some of the stuff they've done around the missile bases in Poland and Romania may be, may be going a little too far. Um, yeah. yeah. Shall we open it to questions, Bernard, for, um, while Robert is still there? But Robert can answer all the housing questions and you can answer all the military <laughs> questions. <laughs> that's, that's, that's good. You probably yes, get better please. answers that way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I'll just and I'll just stand and mock you all on the side. Yeah, yeah. that's that's good. Now we've got a couple of um in the Q and A here, which I'm looking to answer uh, as we go. Um, uh, there was a question about how what proportion of uh, borrowers in the last few months are the most at risk. We don't actually have the breakdown of those numbers, but the Reserve Bank has told us that um, whenever you have new borrowers at current interest rates, uh, they are um, uh, going to struggle with uh, servicing costs of more than 50% of disposable income. Uh, however, um, the thing is, as after someone's given a loan, it does take a while. Um, things change as soon as you've, you've got the loan, your equity changes, your income changes. So trying to sort of reverse engineer how much trouble people are in 
after six, uh, six months or so is quite difficult. So uh, that's one of the questions. Um, what is Russia's relationship with China? Well, interestingly, that statement that's come out today, which I put a link into the, the chat there from the CNBC story, um, China's, as, as Robert says, China seems to have um, uh, basically given Russia a free pass to do what it wants. Um, do, do, do you I'm really not sure think- about that, Bernard. I, I think there is conflict within the Chinese leadership about this. Oh, right. We always assume with a one-party state that the boss, Xi Jinping, who's the boss at the moment, that everyone loyally serves behind that, but they speak in coded language. Let's be quite clear about this. Um, first of all, China will not link its fate to Russia simply because it regards Russia as a junior partner. Mm. And China is very conscious about the fact that it's become, you know, it, it's transformed its economy in the last three or four decades. And it's quite contentious privately about the Russian efforts on the economy, an economy smaller than Italy's. Mm. Um, the second thing is that the Chinese do know, although they don't like to admit it, that their rise to superpower status has been based on immersion in the world capitalist market. Mm. And if they want, and if the Chinese communist leaders want to retain their political legitimacy, they need to make sure that they retain access to that those global markets, not least the United States, uh, the EU, the world's biggest, the most single prosperous single market, and also Japan. So, uh, I'm, I think that the Chinese attitude towards Russia is very ambivalent. I think it's divided. I think there are some hardliners who are really behind Putin. Maybe we got the statement from the hardliners today. Maybe we'll be getting a, a dove mm. statement tomorrow. I don't know. But I think the Chinese uh, have a history of poor relations with Russia. And um, the other thing is they may be seeing economic opportunities here for themselves because Putin's got nowhere else to go. If the West effectively squeezes him mm. economically, they may see, oh, yeah, we can. And after all, you guys probably know this better than I do, but didn't the Chinese do a big gas deal with after the after the Russians annexed the Crimea and faced sanctions from the EU and the United States? They ended up doing a big gas deal with the Chinese yeah, who basically fleeced them. And it's still going to take about five years to deliver, whereas the U Europe, of course, has, has gets, I think, 42 percent of its gas and nearly half of its oil from the from Russia. Yeah, it's so gonna, I think there's going to be some real pain in Europe, I think. I think the Chinese view towards Russia is nuanced. A lot of people are getting, a, well, not a lot of people, but some people, and I understand it, are thinking, my God, we've got this, you know, this authoritarian coalition and they're going to overwhelm mm. the democratic mm. world. I don't think it's as simple as that because one of them owes its success <laughs> to the world capitalist system and it knows where it's, you know, where, mm. where it's uh, bread is being buttered. So I, I don't think they're going to lose sight of that. Particularly if, um, you know, uh, Putin's invasion of Ukraine triggers some sort of in internal disruption that sees him exited from the, from the top, um, that would be a, uh, a, a sort of a sad lesson for the, for the, for the Chinese not to, to overreach um, with any sort of um, uh, dangerous stuff with Taiwan. You know, it, it, can, it can cost you if you, you make the wrong move. Yeah. And I think the Chinese, at least some members of the Central Committee, are quite uncomfortable about Mr. Putin's denial that Ukraine 
is a legitimate sovereign state. Mm. Chinese, after all, had good, very good relations with Ukraine and valued that relationship. So um, it's very difficult to read the Chinese because they always play it safe in diplomatic terms, although this statement was, you know, today was a bit of a bombshell. But yeah, it, it, I, I think we just have to watch this space. I mean, it's just an interesting one, but I don't think we should get too panicky about it uh, because I think ultimately um, China will do what's best for China and not be guided by Mr. Putin. Thanks, Robert. I feel I feel guilty that we've sucked you into the world of um, punditry with us. <laughs> uh, any other questions that we've got there that we haven't answered? I think we've pretty much done that. There, there was a one question about um, how long will the mandates last after this court ruling today? Uh, as I mentioned earlier, I, I think that this is something that will um, cure itself, if you like, uh, within a month or two as we open up the borders and as once we're past the peak of hospitalizations um, and hopefully it hasn't overwhelmed the system, then the government's in a much easier position to sort of wind back um, carefully. I think we'll, we'll, um, we'll uh, close it up there. It's been a wonderful uh, afternoon of punditry, but also learning a bunch of stuff. I really appreciate. Again, Robert, you came onto the show uh, for the third for the, to their time, in part because I actually think that the events of the last um, couple of days have have really gone way beyond anything I thought mm. that that uh, the Russians would be silly enough to do. And um, it really has... I, I agree with Peter. It's not some sort of 1945 style uh, epic thing that we we should compare it to. But it is. It seems to me this is a significant change or mm. moment in in history, uh, particularly in Europe, that will, you know, um, shift the the board game around, if you like. Mm, mm, mm. Definitely. Yeah, and and reverberate through inflation. We've seen oil prices go up. It'll it'll reverberate in real ways as well as imagined ways. I think, I think it's very important for New Zealand to think about this. Yeah, well, I mean, the, the most obvious way will be probably this weekend. People will be driving past their service stations and see three dollar a litre um, signs up there. And uh, but there is some good news, as I pointed out today in the. Uh, the email. Um, one of the things about Ukraine, uh, sort of breadbasket of Eastern Europe, uh, is that uh, its wheat exports are likely to be disrupted. And that's meant that a lot of the soft commodity prices have spiked. And uh, that means dairy prices have spiked because that's a feed for a lot of the dairy farms in Europe, the United States. And aluminium prices have spiked to a record high overnight, which is Sadly, fantastic. Hur news. Hooray for T.Y. Point. I know. I know. Which I know. is owned by Russians, isn't it? Uh, well, uh, Rio well, Tinto. Yeah, Rio Tinto. No, I don't think. No, I don't oh, think Rio Tinto. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Rio, Rio Tinto um, uh, is a London listed. London listed. And, yeah. But the thing is, because uh, the Russians are significant aluminium producers and because they export gas to the power stations in Europe, which supply the aluminium smelters in Europe. Um, this is uh, reducing some of the supply into the market. So, um, and the other thing is the New Zealand dollar just dropped to 66 cents last night because of all the drama. There's a rush to safety. So one of the well, great- What could be safer than New Zealand? The New Zealand dollar should be should be a um, reserve currency. Actually, now there's a bloody good idea. Let's, let's pitch New Zealand dollar as a reserve currency now. Well, 
we should end here, but this is a, this is an interesting idea in terms of middle power and mm. small power's ability to punch above its weight on the global stage. If you wanted to um, create a currency which people trusted and which uh, was independent. Oh God! Of, here comes the crypto kiwi kaka. Ah, uh, well, that's not a bad idea. The KKK. Kaka, I think. Excellent. <laughs> uh, we should all go and let people have their gins and tonics at home. Uh, Robert, thank you again. Very much appreciate it. Very welcome. Peter, thank uh, you. Uh, lo lovely to see you all again. See you. And, um, Thanks, Robert. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, everybody. see everyone on the, on the panel again in a week's time. Ka kite ano, everyone. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Thank you.